Oh, look, Mr. Chris Scott has joined us today. Well, hello. Did you know, did you know that you had put that on there? <laughs> oh, people, good evening. It what is Wednesday, where? February 28th. It, it is Wednesday, February 28th, Chris. And I'm Carrie Labert. I welcome you to an online webinar evening of Solutions for New Alberta, brought to you by the Alberta Prosperity Project, those also known as APP. Chris is actually not in uh, in Alberta today. Chris is in BC. How are you, Chris? I'm doing you well. Speak? How are you, Carrie? I'm good. You totally threw off my introduction to everything. <laughs> How did I I'm do that? I'm the only one laughing at this because, uh, I, of course, I go through my little spiel of what's going on, and here Chris happened to pop in just just as we were going live. So Chris is on a ferry up to uh, Campbell River, I believe. Yeah, we're just uh, we just got off the ferry and we're heading up. Excellent. Well, you know what, Chris? I'm just gonna I'm gonna remove you for a second or two here while I go through what APP is all about. And we'll call you back in just a second. <laughs> That's always funny. APP's purpose is to educate, inspire, and unite all Albertans, businesses, and organizations to protect their prosperity, individual freedoms, rights, and self-determination by empowering the Alberta government to restructure Alberta's relationship within or without Canada. Of course, we couldn't do this without your help. If you can, please share, share, share this webinar. And uh, and I've seen, uh, I, I could tell already that people have watched uh, a few of these webinars because usually I say, please comment uh, which city or town you're watching from and ideally what platform you're on. And there are people, there's from, uh, from Len is from Warrenville, uh, Marion's from Red Deer County, uh, Stone Lee, hello again. Uh, and RS is from uh, Calgary as well. It's great to have everybody joining us here on our weekly Wednesday webinar. We are on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Rumble live, as well as after this live, we're also on other video and audio sites like Apple, Spotify, BitChute, and Vimo, etc. APP is a membership-driven association, society, and we are driven with a goal with a goal of a million plus members to help steer the political process. APP memberships are one year for $20, two years for $30, three years for $40, or you can make a donation at albertaprosperityproject.com. We're going to get Max to maybe put that up on there if he's if he's able to do that. Uh, we are in the process of updating our website, actually, and we hope to have it ready in the next few weeks. And I'm sure everyone's excited about it because I know I am uh, definitely want to have the webinars up here and, uh, and the events. Speaking of events... If you go onto the website and you go under latest and events, you can find out what we're doing for our events here. And we've got a few coming up here, uh, as well as the weekly Wednesday webinars. We're also doing a uh, pension plan tour. And this weekend we are in Cesar, which is near Provost, if you know where that is in Alberta. That is on March 2nd. And uh, after that, on Wednesday, we are in Westlock. And the following day would that be the following friday i believe would be in uh, beaumont so uh if you're in the area there please do check us out come on out and see what's going on and i'm just going to hide that again there you go and so tonight tonight is one of those everyone's got to be talking about this we got to be talking about our debt whether it's your own personal debt or talking about canada's debt we are definitely talking about canada's debt we have Jake Fuss, who is an analyst and director of fiscal studies for the Fraser Institute. 
And I was going to say that we usually have APP's interim CEO, Chris Scott, who, uh, who it was going to be joining us. And it looks like he will be joining us. So we'll, uh, we'll call him up as well. And uh, this is a live webinar. So we encourage you to ask questions, make comments throughout this presentation. Just put three question marks before your question. So we flagged and we can quickly view the questions. And with that now, I will bring on Jake and Mr. Scott. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello. Good evening. I've already said hi to you, Chris, though. Good evening. <laughs> you know, it's going to get okay. so dark that we won't be able to see your face pretty soon. That's oh, well. lucky you. <laughs> so, Jake, uh, you're you're with the Fraser Institute, and uh, you've got uh, a little bit of a, a history. Why don't you explain or, or tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with uh, with the Fraser Institute and especially with what you're doing now. Sure, uh, yeah, so I'm the Director of Fiscal Studies at the Fraser Institute, uh, currently based in Calgary, Alberta. Um, my role basically involves analyzing uh, government debt, spending, uh, taxation policies. Um, I also look a little bit at labor policy and charitable giving, um, and a whole host of other categories. Um, so generally I'm writing uh, commentaries that you might see uh, in the Sun Chain or other post media uh, outlets, um, also Globe and Mail or National Post. Um, and then on top of that, I also present at, at conferences um, and also uh, present at post secondary seminars for uh, post secondary students as well. Um, and my background, uh, I did both my degrees at the University of Calgary. Um, so I originally did my Bachelor of Commerce with a major in finance. Um, then went on to do my master's of public policy also at the university of calgary because i had a keen interest in uh, really public finance and government policy for canadians yeah. um, so that was kind of what led me to the fraser institute um, and ultimately uh, ended up here about five and a half years ago now okay now when you're dealing with government are you dealing with all levels of government or are you specialize only at federal yeah, so I do a, a bit of everything. So the main focus, uh, the main priority is, is looking at uh, federal policy for me, um, but I also do a lot of work with the provinces as well. Um, so we do have kind of regional initiatives at the Fraser Institute. So we also do have people that specifically focus on Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario, Atlantic Canada, for instance. Um, so I'm also, you know, covering the budgets for Ontario or British Columbia, um, Alberta as well. Um, so we, we do deal with uh, quite a, a bunch of different types of governments, okay. uh, different levels of governments as well. Not as much at the local level, but primarily provincial and federal. So here, here's the, the, big, the big question is, do all, do all forms of government have debt? And is there good debt and is there bad debt? Yes. Yeah, so for the most part, governments in Canada at really all levels do have debt. Now, there are certain municipalities that are restricted from having debt. Um, so that's generally the case in Alberta that most pro or most local governments can't take on debt. Okay. It's a little bit of a different case um, in some of the Ontario jurisdictions and other places in Canada. Um, but there are also types, good types of debt and bad types of debt. Um, so generally, you know, uh, borrowing money for things like infrastructure projects, those can have economic returns over the long term. Mm -hmm. So there might be a case to be made for borrowing some money in those cases. Um, but, you know, to kind of have day to day operational spending for governments, that is not um, you know, an economic return to governments. Yeah. Um, so it, that is generally what we refer to as, is not good debt or bad debt. Um, so there are different types of debt and ultimately some are better than others. Okay. Now you've got a presentation done up here and is that dealing with federal debt? 
Uh, so it'll mainly focus on federal debt, um, but we'll also delve into some of the provinces too, and okay. specifically um, Alberta uh, for, for this audience. So uh, okay. it will cover both provincial and federal debt. Okay. And uh, one thing that uh, before we went live, I just showed this to, to Jake, and of course he's seen it already. This is uh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation actually has a Canada debt clock. You may have seen it. Uh, I, I, where's the actual clock? Do you, is it just outside of Ottawa? I believe it is. I remember driving by it and seeing these numbers. And of course, uh, you know, I was probably, well, I was going to say I was probably 16 when I drove by there and the numbers were a lot, lot smaller back then. But uh, here you can see we're at, uh, I'm, there's a lot of numbers there. I'm going to assume that's 1.2 trillion. That's correct. Yes. And, and it's growing divided, quite fast. And then divided by roughly the 40 million people in Canada, that's where we get everyone here owes $31,000, let's just say. Yeah, exactly. And, and we're going to get into some of those details too, because I think some of the numbers are going to be pretty shocking when we're comparing some of the different provinces and then also factoring in um, the federal uh, debt on top of the provincial debt um, yeah. that the Canadians have. So it's a pretty okay. substantial amount. Okay. Chris, did you want to ch chime in on anything here? Or do you think we can just start right in with the presentation? Yeah, but my service is so bad here. I, I just, uh, I'm not. <laughs> As he locks up. So why don't we, do, why don't we just, there you go. Why don't we just uh, put the presentation up here? And uh, I've got control of the slides. And uh, you just let me know when you want to uh, click. And then I will do that for you, Jake. Sounds great. Thanks very much, Kerry. Um, and pleased to be joining you all today to be talking about uh, what I think is a pretty serious issue in Canada, uh, particularly over the last 10 to 15 years or so, which is really the growth in government debt. Um, and we'll also be getting into the consequences for Canadians, because uh, it's one thing to kind of talk about, you know, the, the numbers that are on a piece of paper, the billions and trillions. But I think it's also important to talk about the actual consequences and the implications for everyday Canadians. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to be talking a little bit about some of the research that I've done with some of my colleagues um, recently and, and also some of the, the research that we've done really over the last five or 10 years um, as well. So we'll be talking about federal debt um, primarily, but we'll also talk quite a bit about provincial debt as well. Um, so next slide, please. Um, so just kind of giving some some context here, I, I picked this particular example to kind of set the stage for you. Um, you know, really, this is not only a problem just at the federal level, but also the provincial level. We've had many premiers, prime ministers, finance ministers talk about how, you know, we recently had interest rates at historic lows, um, particularly during COVID. Um, so governments really looked at this as sort of an opportunity to borrow more money than they even were in the past. Um, but this was also the case even before COVID. So this is not necessarily just a COVID related issue because um, we've really had low interest rates uh, for about 10 to 15 years before COVID occurred as well. Um, and, and like I said, you know, the, the governments and finance ministers during this time, um, you know, if you look at this quote here from federal finance minister, Christian Freeland in, in her budget speech in 2021, um, she was pointing to uh, the historic low interest rates as basically a reason that we have to make the investments or increase government spending over time because um, it would be short-sighted of us not to make these investments according to the, to the finance ministers during this time. But of course, we know 
um, that over time, interest rates eventually are going to increase, um, just like what we eventually saw during COVID um, in the latter stages during 2022, 2023, with inflation rising. Um, we ultimately saw the Bank of Canada ultimately had to increase interest rates. Um, and then there's this associated cost for governments as interest rates start to rise. Um, that means all that debt that you accumulated over time is going to have a significant cost and implications for government finances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, so just next slide, please. And before we do that, just for the people that are maybe listening to us on uh, Apple or Spotify and don't have the slide in front, it's, uh, it's a picture of uh, Federal Finance Minister Christian Freeland in their budget speech in 2021. And the title is, in 2021, interest rates were at historic lows. And she says, in today's low interest rate environment, not only can we afford these investments, it would be short-sighted of us not to make Um, so this next slide here is just a visual of what happened really from 2020 to 2023. Um, so we have a green line here basically tracking what happened with the Bank of Canada's interest rate. Um, and then the red line here shows you what actually happened with the rate of inflation nationally in Canada. Um, so we're tracking from January 2020, so just before um, COVID occurred in, in March. Um, and ultimately, what you can see um, here is that the interest rate obviously went down pretty rapidly at the beginning of COVID. Um, so we had, you know, historic low interest rates um, and it really stayed constant until about halfway through 2022. Um, so that's when governments were borrowing significant amounts of money. Um, but at the same time, we also see that inflation was rising very rapidly between 2020 and 2022. Um, at the peak, um, it actually surpassed an 8% inflation rate. Um, and then ultimately, uh, inflation does gradually start to come down, but only when the Bank of Canada starts increasing interest rates um, in, that, in 2022. Um, and as I mentioned, when these interest rates start to rise, ultimately what we know then is that that comes with a cost towards governments. Um, so all this spending and accumulated debt that they had during COVID and before COVID is now starting to have consequences because yes. when you have those higher interest rates, ultimately that means your interest costs are rising over time as a government. Um, and that's money that doesn't go towards paying, you know, healthcare, education, social services. That's money that goes towards just interest costs, just servicing that debt. Um, yeah. So now at the federal level, for instance, um, they're spending about one in every $10 of revenue that they collect just on interest costs uh, for wow. perspective. Wow. But so I know this question comes up all the time, but who's the recipient of all that interest? Yeah, so it's a good question. So ultimately, um, how they finance um, debt is generally through bonds. Um, so they issue these out to the private markets. Um, so some of that will go to domestic private uh, bondholders. Some of that goes to uh, international markets as well. Um, so there is a competitive um, kind of private international market um, that that um, takes on these debt, uh, mm -hmm. this, this um, bonds, I should say. Um, and the Bank of Canada is also involved in that process as well. So if the Bank of Canada is dropping, according to this chart, dropping it, uh, the rate, whatever it was, May of 2022, uh, from about 8% down to, it looks roughly 3% almost a year later. So they're, they're dropping that, and yet they're still issuing bonds out in order to cover any interest. What what ends up happening with that that money? Like, is it was it just the minister arbitrarily picking, you know, we... We know people are now unemployed. We know uh, everything's stopped, come to a halt because of uh, uh, the pandemic. Should we just put the brakes on all interest, drop it, 
and then knowing full well that we'll end up having to raise the interest rates rates later? So it's a good question. I mean, ultimately, there's, um, you know, Scotiabank actually had a really interesting report where they were pointing to a lot of the spending that was done by governments basically had a direct impact on interest rates. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, governments were basically assuming that we're going to have low interest rates forever. Um, then yeah. what ends up happening is because they're spending so much money um, that actually puts upward pressure on interest rates. So they had an impact essentially on inflation and on interest rates over time. Uh, so all of that government spending that was occurring during COVID actually put a lot of upward pressure. And you can see that kind of in the interest rates, not just the uh, impact of the decisions of Bank of Canada. Um, it's also the effect of government policies pushing those interest rates up higher. Um, so the Scotiabank has a really interesting report about that, where they point to a lot of the increase in interest rates, about half or so, um, can actually be attributed to government spending and debt that occurred during COVID. So then I guess the, the short question is because of the drop of the interest rate, did they know that they would eventually need to raise the interest rate? Not necessarily. I mean, it's, it is a complicated equation. Um, but I think that the situation is basically the assumptions of governments and finance ministers was basically that they were going to operate in this historically low in interest rate environment for the foreseeable future. And that obviously didn't come to be the, the case. Um, so a lot of those assumptions were flawed. Um, and ultimately, over time, now we're seeing, you know, the effects of those. Um, now we have a, a you know, a 5% um, interest rate from the yeah. from uh, in Canada nationally as well. Um, so th those assumptions, um, you know, we're saying where they're saying, you know, it's going to be short sighted for us not to make those investments. Um, now that's actually coming back to, to hurt them. Um, because ultimately, uh, it, it appears it was short sighted to make those investments and assume that you're going to have those low interest rates forever. Mm -hmm. Uh, next slide, please. Whoops. I guess Max is doing that. Are you doing that, Max? <laughs> uh, so this next graph here just shows you um, what's basically happened to our annual federal spending that we've done um, between 2014. So that's the year before the Trudeau government took office. Um, and then we point out all the way to 2026. Um, so that's how much they're projected to spend um, over the next few years as well. Um, so the starting point in 2014 um, at that point, the federal government was spending about $256 billion annually. Um, and then you can see pretty uh, substantial increase even before COVID began. Um, so by 2019, the federal government was spending almost $350 billion a year. So just in that really five-year span, the government had increased annual spending by about $100 billion. So just to put that in perspective. Then obviously you, you can see in this graph here, there's a pretty substantial spike um, during 2020. We reached record levels of spending. You know, a lot of this, um, you know, was attributed to, um, you know, emergency spending and other things. Um, but then coming out of COVID, um, you know, you can see spending does come back down. However, it remains at significantly higher levels than it was before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, so you can see that, yes, they took down, you know, some of the temporary spending that we're, they were doing during COVID, um, but there was a pretty dramatic permanent ramp, ramp up in spending. Um, and even though it returned to about $448 billion in 2022, then there's a, a, another substantial increase in spending again. Um, and by the year 2026, the federal government expects to spend just under $500 billion annually. Um, and just to put this in perspective again, um, this is almost double what we were spending just in 2014. So in, in the span of basically 11 or 12 years, we're going to basically double the size of the federal government and how much we're spending currently. Um, and this is ultimately a problem because the federal government is borrowing money 
um, to pay for all of this new spending that it's taking on. Wow. And I, it, is, it is important to point out here, folks, the federal government is borrowing money on our behalf. They're actually, they're spending our money. So when we say the federal government is spending money, what we're really meaning is the federal government is spending your money. Yeah, ultimately, that's one of the important consequences, too, that, um, you know, when we talk about borrowing money or debt, I mean, ultimately, this needs to be paid for. Um, and generally, it's paid for by future tax increases for future generations of Canadians. Um, so that's one of the major implications of federal debt or provincial debt, for that matter. Uh, next slide, please. Um, and then this just puts this into context um, in terms of how much we're, we're currently spending at the federal level right now. Um, so we track um, spending at the federal level by prime ministers um, since the Second World War. Um, so the graph here shows you kind of some of the peaks and valleys that you see throughout Canadian history in, in terms of spending. Uh, and we break this down on a per person spending level um, because ultimately we know as you have population growth over time, governments are going to spend more money. Mm -hmm. um, and we also adjust it for inflation so that we can compare spending today to spending all the way back in the 1930s, for instance. Um, and what you generally see is that spending spikes during periods of emergency. So it's going to spend, uh, they're going to spend um, at record levels during world wars. They're going to spend at record levels during recessions like 2008, for instance. Um, but one of the interesting developments recently um, is that we actually reached record levels in Canadian history before COVID even occurred. So in 2018 and 2019, we were actually spending at the highest point in Canadian history, um, higher than we were in world, in the, during the World Wars, higher than we were during the 2008 financial recession. Um, and then ultimately, COVID exacerbates this issue and we reach even higher levels in 2020. Um, but another interesting development is even if we exclude the, the spending that was attributed to the COVID pandemic during 2020, we were still at record levels in Canadian history. Um, and then coming out of COVID as well in 2022, uh, we were still above the pre-pandemic levels of spending, um, which were already again at record levels. Um, so really, you know, over the last five or six years, we've been at record levels um, of spending in Canadian history, even when we exclude all COVID related or pandemic spending that was spent um, during the last number of years. So with that, is there, spending, is, is is there it, anything that sticks out as to what that, where that extra spending is, is occurring? Is it social programs? Is it uh, and, and, uh, government employees? Maybe there's a spike in government employees. Yeah, so it's really a number of things. So it's an expansion of new permanent programs. So things like $10 day daycare, um, national dental care. Um, it's also the expansion of the federal bureaucracy at the same time too. So we've had a massive increase in the number of people that are employed uh, by the federal government. And also the, the total compensation package has been increasing quite rapidly as well. Um, so a lot of the spending is going to new programs, expanded programs too. Um, the expanded programs like the Canada Child Benefit, um, or spending on specific departments as well. Um, and then also the, the general growth in the federal bureaucracy as well. Okay, uh, next slide, please. Um, and ultimately the consequence of all this spending is that the federal government is borrowing money um, to pay for all of this new spending. Um, so you can see really between 2014 and 2026, um, these are basically the deficits that the government expects to uh, incur. Um, so before COVID even began, we were already incurring, you know, we were already borrowing about $20 billion um, in 2016, 2017. 
Um, then before COVID even strikes um, in 2019, the final year before the pandemic, um, the, the federal government was borrowing $39 billion during that year. Then again, like we've mentioned, um, it exacerbates in 2020 and we reached record levels in Canadian history at $328 billion. Um, and again, we run a, another $90 billion deficit in 2021. Um, and then, but the interesting development is that even though we're, we're now long, no longer in that pandemic stage, um, in 2023 to 2026, we're actually running larger deficits than we did before the pandemic. Um, so the federal government's kind of, um, you know, narrative during 2020 and 2021 is we need to borrow money because we're in an emergency situation. Um, and then we'll, you know, kind of resolve this situation later. Um, but then what we see is this really isn't a temporary development. It's actually a permanent ramp up in spending. Um, and we're ultimately borrowing money to finance all of these new expenditures um, and the growing size of the federal government over time, too. Uh, next slide, please. Um, now, ultimately, this isn't just a problem at the federal level. This is also a problem at the provincial level. So we've had governments um, in, in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec, uh, even Alberta up until recently, uh, were really incurring significant deficits and borrowing significant money. Um, so this graph here shows you uh, the ramp up in debt um, really over the last 15 or 16 years in Canada. Um, so in 2007, uh, we were already at a substantial level of, of government debt in Canada um, at the federal and provincial level um, at about $1.2 trillion. Um, but we've almost doubled that amount um, by 2023. Um, so we're now sitting at about $2.2 trillion in government debt. Um, so this, just to kind of put that in perspective, that's about an 85% increase or so um, in government debt, and that's adjusted for inflation. So it would be even higher um, if we weren't even accounting for the effects of inflation. Right. Um, so ultimately, these are costs that are passed on to Canadian taxpayers. Mm -hmm. Unreal. Uh, next slide, please. Um, this next chart here just shows you, kind of puts us into perspective too, because, um, you know, it's kind of hard for us to fathom, you know, what's the difference between, you know, 2 trillion versus 3 trillion or other amounts. Uh, so we like to put these into per person amounts so that we can put this into perspective. Um, so this, this chart here shows you um, a breakdown by province. So it's showing you how much um, you have in, in terms of provincial debt. Um, by all, in, among all the provinces here in Canada on a per person basis between 2007 and 2023. Um, and then we also show the amount for the federal government as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the federal amount I can start with, um, back in 2007, people had about $22,000 of debt per person just in terms of federal amounts. Um, by 2023, um, this amount had increased by over 50%. Um, and now we're sitting at uh, almost $34,000 per person in just federal debt currently. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's really dramatically increased in about 16 years. Um, then I'll highlight, you know, Alberta situation. Um, you might wonder why they have a negative amount to 2007. Alberta was in a really good financial situation back in 2007. They were responsibly managing finances and they were at a point where they, their assets were actually larger than their liabilities. Um, so essentially they had no debt um, on the books at that time. Um, now, obviously, circumstances changed. Um, you know, we had the 2015 oil price co collapse, um, and we also had some irresponsible management of, of provincial finances over that time. Um, and by 2023, um, then Alberta Albertans had about almost $9,000 per person in debt. Um, now, it's still much better than all the other provinces. You can clearly see that Alberta is the lowest debt um, province in Canada right now on a per person basis. Um, however, it did deteriorate quite significantly. Um, and uh, 
they, they, we got to a situation where the debt was actually accumulating faster than most other provinces um, over the last 15 years or so. Um, but generally, what you can also see is some other common trends. Um, generally, Western Canadian provinces fare much better in terms of finances. Uh, so places like British Columbia, Alberta and Saskatchewan generally have much lower debt um, than other places in Canada, like Ontario or Quebec, which have almost double amount the amount of debt per person as some of the Western provinces. Um, and another uh, kind of province that sticks out for me is Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, you can see that they have about four times as much debt as Alberta at over $32,000 a person. Um, so they've really had issues managing their finances, despite the fact that they have similar circumstances to Alberta and that they have oil and gas revenue um, as part of their budgets. Um, so it's a pretty substantial issue in Canada. Uh, and you can see really it's been a dramatic increase in debt, regardless of which province you live in. So this is not yeah. just a a problem unique to one specific province in Canada. It's really an across the board issue for all provinces right now. And just to clarify again, we've got a federal line that says $33,682. And then if we look at Alberta, it's 8,832. So if you live in Alberta, you actually would owe, in order to clear off the debt, you would owe the federal number and the Alberta number, right? Yes. So you owe dollars $40, $42,000. That's and correct. Yeah, everybody here would have to to basically give the government forty two thousand dollars to wipe the the Alberta and our portion of the federal debt clean. I guess. Yeah, exactly. And and if you think about that, I mean, forty thousand dollars is essentially you know the annual income for a lot of people too. Um, so just to kind of put that in perspective of how much how the scale and magnitude of of government debt essentially and how much is owed by uh, Canadian taxpayers right now. Wow. Uh, next slide, please. Now, ultimately, you know, it's great to have those those talks about how much everybody um, has in terms of debt um, to provide perspective. Uh, but I think it's even more important to get into the consequences of that debt. Um, so we have this infographic that we created for, for some of our studies here. Um, so we're, we're essentially saying, you know, there's no free lunch when governments accumulate debt, even with low interest rates. Um, there is a cost always associated to decisions. Um, so there's a, a cost associated with, you know, increasing taxes. There's a cost associated with borrowing money, for instance. Um, and ultimately, these costs are slower economic growth. Um, why is this a concern for us? Well, when you, you don't have an economy that's growing very fast, that means that you're, you're not having people's incomes grow fast. You're not having uh, job creation. Um, you're not having a healthy economy that ultimately uh, improves over time and ultimately allows people to have a higher standard of living. Um, and a second related issue is that you can also get reduced private sector wages um, because a lot of this public sector borrowing actually ends up crowding out um, some of the private sector activity because they're competing with resources um, with each other. Um, and it can eventually actually have that the circumstances where you get a lower private sector wages than you would uh, in, a, in, in an otherwise situation, you might say. Mm -hmm. um, and the last consequence that I've highlighted here, too, is that um, because governments borrow money, um, they can actually push interest rates up higher than they otherwise would be too, um, which is actually something that we've seen really over the last number of years as well, as I've mentioned. Um, so you can end up actually having higher interest rates as a result of governments accumulating debt over time. Uh, next slide, please. Um, another consequence too, um, we, we like to show here the intergenerational kind of breakdown, because ultimately the burden of debt 
disproportionately follows, uh, falls on um, younger generations, future generations of Canadians, because they're ultimately the ones who have to pay back the debt and cover the corresponding interest payments. Um, you know, they're generally at the start of their careers too. Um, so any future tax increases that result from this debt accumulation are ultimately going to be borne by those younger generations of Canadians. Um, so we highlight here in this chart, um, you know, for a Canadian between the ages of 16 to 25, um, over their lifetime, um, just attributable to federal borrowing, so this isn't even accounting for provincial borrowing, um, they'd pay about just over $24,000 over their lifetime in additional personal income taxes above what they normally would um, if there was no federal borrowing, for instance. Um, and uh, there's different amounts um, depending on which age group you're in. It's generally going to be less um, if you're in an older age group. Um, the reason why that is 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 because you're you're not going to be earning as much as you're uh, towards retirement, for instance. Um, so future tax increases won't affect you as much as um, it will for a younger um, generation of Canadians, for instance. Uh, next slide, please. Um, another consequence ultimately is interest itself on government debt. Mm -hmm. This is ultimately a cost that is directly borne by taxpayers um, because when governments collect your tax money, um, it goes into a general revenue pool and then they take that money out and they dish it out to all the different expenditures um, and interest costs are a significant expenditure. Um, so this is money that isn't going towards healthcare, education, social services. It's just money that's going towards servicing debt. Um, so in 2023, um, when we look at both federal and provincial interest costs, um, you're spending at least $1,750 per person on just government interest costs on an annual basis. Um, so the lowest amount is generally found in Western Canada. So British Columbia uh, had the lowest amount at $1,764 per person. Um, and then the highest uh, amount is in Newfoundland and Labrador, um, where residents there are spending over $3,000 a year on government interest costs currently. Um, so this, this really kind of puts it into perspective just how much um, you know, Canadians are currently spending on government interest costs. Um, and that money is, is essentially not going towards other priorities like tax relief or, or social programs. It's just going towards servicing that government debt. Uh, next slide, please. Um, then I also wanted to include a few slides um, as part of our, some of our recent research. Um, I, th I think this kind of provides a sense of scale of how much the federal government is currently spending on interest costs in the current year and in, or in the last year in 2023. Um, so they're, they're projecting they're going to spend just under $47 billion on interest costs. Um, to put that in context, um, they spend about $49 billion on the Canada health transfers. So that's how much money that they spend or they send to the different provinces on wow. healthcare expenditures. Wow. Um, and then another point of comparison, um, the federal government has placed a, a huge emphasis on childcare benefits. Um, so this is things like the Canada Child Benefit and also the $10 a day daycare program that they put into place. Um, so that's a huge priority for the federal government. They're spending about $31 billion annually on that program. Um, so just to give you a sense of scale, they're spending significantly more on interest costs um, than they are on their key priority of childcare benefits. Uh, next slide, please. Um, it's a similar case for uh, a bunch of provinces across Canada. Uh, so if we look at Ontario, they're, they're an interesting case. Um, so on the left here, we have uh, two bars. Um, so the, the bottom orange bar or red bar um, is the provincial portion of interest costs. Um, so the Ontario government spends over a billion dollars a month on interest costs. Um, so they spend just over $13 billion on interest costs. 
Um, but then when you add in the federal portion that Ontarians also owe in interest costs, it's about $18 billion on top of that $13 billion. Um, but the provincial interest costs, um, the, the, the province actually spends more on government interest costs than it does on post-secondary education, for instance. Uh, when you factor in that federal portion of interest costs, Ontarians actually spend nearly as much on government interest costs as they do on their entire K-12 provincial public education system. So this, this kind of just shows you, you know, how fast these interest costs are, are growing wow. uh, and really the scale of these interest costs as well. Uh, next slide, please. Um, Alberta is a very similar case as well. Um, so in Alberta, um, the government in, in Edmonton is spending just over $3 billion in 2023 on uh, provincial interest costs. This is more than they spend on their children's and family services department, for instance, at $2.9 billion. Um, when we factor in the federal portion of uh, interest costs that Albertans also spend, um, then it's ultimately almost uh, as substantial as what the province spends on K-12 education when we're mm -hmm. looking at the combined cost of provincial and federal interest costs. Um, so again, it's just a, a substantial amount of money that governments are currently spending. Um, they're spending basically the same amount on interest costs as they are on you know, important public priorities like K-12 education. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, and then this last one here just shows you consolidated government interest costs. So this includes federal debt, provincial debt, and uh, local debt um, across Canada. So in 2022, um, all levels of government um, collectively spent about $82 billion on interest costs, um, which is roughly what the entire uh, K-12 education system in Canada cost. Um, and it's also more than what Canada spent on Canada Pension Plan and Quebec Pension wow. Plan benefits. Um, so again, uh, interest costs are a substantial expense um, relative to other priorities in Canada. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so ultimately, you know, what can governments actually do about this or, or what can Canadians do about this? Because um, there are ways that, you know, that we can stop accumulating debt, um, turn around our fortunes. This is not set in stone. Um, but what ultimately can governments do about this problem? Uh, next slide, please. Um, really what we've done um, at the Fraser Institute is look at fiscal rules. So these are, are ways that uh, we can put constraints on governments in terms of how much they're borrowing, how much they're spending, um, and, and apply some discipline on government finances and make sure that they're fiscally responsible, not only in the short term, but over the long term, so that we can have this for multiple generations of Canadians. Um, so fiscal rules for governments that limit spending are really the best way to stabilize government finances and debt. Um, they ultimately result in less debt, um, they stabilize government finances, they provide a level of sustainability, um, and they can also improve economic growth over the long term because uh, there's more certainty for, especially for private sector investors, where they're not worried about constantly having to have future tax increases because you're borrowing money and paying for it at a later date. Um, so there's a lot of economic benefits from having proper fiscal rules in place. Um, and what do I mean by fiscal rules? Well, ultimately, it's about, you know, capping, uh, you know, the rate of growth for spending, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so maybe you're saying, OK, well, you can only increase uh, spending by a maximum of three percent year over year um, or that you're putting limits on how much governments can actually borrow or other things like that. Um, so actually having tangible fiscal rules in place are really beneficial. Um, governments a lot of the times either don't have these rules, they don't follow them, 
or sometimes they um, ignore uh, things in scrap legislation that tries to put some discipline on them um, when, when it's convenient for them and they want to just borrow more money or spend more money, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, next slide, please. Um, this is particularly the case in Alberta, where I think it's really important for the provincial government to have fiscal rules. Um, we have something that we call the resource revenue roller coaster. Uh, so this has a lot to do with oil prices in Alberta. Um, so when times are good, we're able to balance budgets because we have a whole lot of oil and gas royalties and revenue that goes towards the provincial government. Um, but then what they do is basically just increase spending um, and basically wipe out a lot of those gains that we have from that oil and gas revenue when times are good. And then what happens is inevitably when times are bad um, and oil prices go back down, our spending remains at elevated levels, but our revenues are way down. So we incur these massive budget deficits. Um, and we're basically riding this constant re revenue re resource re revenue roller coaster over time. Um, and there's dramatic implications for Albertans during those times. Um, so ultimately, um, Alberta definitely needs uh, fiscal rules in place that you know cap um, the amount of uh, spending increases that you can have um, in terms of the, the percentage growth year over year um, and also imposes discipline discipline so that it's balancing the budget even during the bad times yeah. uh, so that uh, it's, there's not a unsustainable um, problem for provincial finances over the long term. Uh, next slide, please. And isn't that what uh, Daniel Smith was uh, proposing in terms of the, the, I believe it's the Heritage Fund, is it not? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in the next two slides here, we're actually going to go and talk a little bit about the Heritage Fund, because uh, that, that's a recent development that we've seen over the last week or so. Um, so some of my colleagues actually did some research over the last year, and they basically proposed, you know, three solutions. Like Alberta currently has surpluses. Um, so they're saying, OK, we can't spend away this generational opportunity for long term prosperity. So what are the three things that we could possibly do? We have kind of three options for us. Well, one of them could be we eliminate our government debt entirely by 2030. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're using our surpluses to pay down our debt and eliminate it, kind of like Ralph Klein did um, yeah. in the early 2000s. Um, an another option is to save a lot of this oil and gas money that we have right now to avoid future deficits. Um, so this is really the option of kind of the heritage fund, for instance, um, where we're, we're reserving a certain proportion of our non-renewable resource revenue and we're putting it towards the future and we're investing it in a fund over the long term so that we have a sustainable flow of, of revenue. And the third option uh, was to use surpluses to reduce um, personal income taxes uh, for Albertans so they have that kind of immediate return in their pocketbooks. Now, ultimately, the, uh, Premier Smith, with her announcement last week, um, and what we'll see likely in the budget tomorrow, um, provincially as well, um, is that they essentially chose the second option, which mm -hmm. is to save to avoid future deficits. Um, so they're going to invest a proportion of non-renewable resource revenue into the Heritage Savings Fund, which has really been neglected for a long time in Alberta. Um, it used to be um, a pretty strong program back in the 1980s, um, and then eventually it got whittled away by a successive governments making decisions about um, what they were going to do with non-renewable resource revenue. A lot of it was basically just spent away um, towards programs and, and other things uh, like that at the provincial level too. Uh, next slide, please. Um, we had some recent research um, from some of my colleagues too in pointing out um, what can be done with the Heritage Fund, for instance. Um, we looked to another um, jurisdiction that's pretty close by in Alaska. Um, so they actually implemented a fund that's very similar to Alberta's Heritage Fund 
um, but actually had much stronger rules in place um, has actually grown quite substantially over time compared to Alberta. Uh, so in 2019, Alaska's fund had about $65 billion in assets in US dollars. Um, and during that same year, Alberta was much, much smaller at about $16 billion Canadian um, in its heritage fund. And the reason why Alaska has been much uh, stronger is, is not only because of these rules, they have mandatory contributions that are required by law um, for their governments to make. Um, so they have to put away a certain percentage of their uh, non-renewable resource revenues every year um, into the fund and they're required to do that and they can't um, disregard those rules. Um, and another thing, another unique factor of the Alaska fund is that they also issue dividends to residents. Mm -hmm. um, so what they do is that they actually give a portion of the fund about $1,000 per person to each Alaskan each year. Um, and this basically provides some skin in the game for Alaskans so that they have a vested interest in maintaining a responsible management of the fund because they actually get immediate returns and they get long-term returns as well from the fund. So they've been very responsible with how they've managed it. Um, whereas Alberta has really neglected it for a long time. Um, but now Premier Smith is, is uh, committing to reestablishing this fund and putting away a, a portion of our uh, oil and gas royalties into that fund. Um, but one of the important developments, too, that my colleagues have talked about um, is in order, in order to maintain this heritage fund over successive governments, one of the important things will also be putting in constitutional rules to ensure that it's not easy to just kind of scrap legislation willy-nilly and get rid of those rules. Um, so one of the ways that you could do this, for instance, would be having like a referendum in Alberta um, where the vast majority of Albertans would then ag agree to these new rules um, in terms of maintaining the, the heritage fund over the long term. Then you pass legislation provincially and then you get it recognized by the Federal House of Commons and Senate. Um, so that's one of the ways that you can kind of ingrain these rules into a constitutional property to ensure long-term sustainability. Uh, next slide, yeah. Um, uh, then looking at the federal level, it's a very similar uh, case as well. Um, we, we, we've done some research in this area as well. Um, so having strong fiscal rules in place could actually solve Ottawa's deficit problem. They could actually get back to balanced budgets um, if they're actually capping how much they're spending um, on a year-over-year -year basis. Um, so ensuring that they're not spending faster than the population is growing or they're not spending faster than inflation, for instance. Um, so there's many different rules that the federal government could use to impose discipline on themselves to actually get back to balanced budgets in the near future. Um, the problem is you need a political willingness to do so. Um, and that's not something that we've we've currently seen at the federal level. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so some of the recent research we did, uh, we had a study that actually came out earlier this month. Um, and what we pointed out is that Ottawa could actually, they didn't, wouldn't even have to make cuts to, to spending in the next two years to return to a balanced budget. They just need to slow down the growth rate or the increases in program spending. And they could actually get back to a balanced budget by 2026. Um, so we show, you know, the current projections for the federal finances right now, um, they're projected to have about $38 billion deficits uh, in 2024. Um, and then in 2026, they would be projected to have about a $27 billion deficit. Uh, so it would shrink a little bit um, over the two years. Uh, but we show if, if they actually limited annual spending growth to about 0.3% for two years, so a little bit more than almost freezing um, federal spending for two years, um, then the federal government can actually get back to a balanced budget and decrease its deficits quite fast. Um, so it just requires a discipline imposing that, that responsible fiscal management on Ottawa's finances. Um, and we could actually get back to a, a 
a positive situation for federal finances really quickly, um, but it just requires again some, some discipline from the federal government. And of course, if you're if you're tightening the purse strings, everybody says, so what would you be getting rid of? Would they be certain social programs? Would they be uh, the military? Like like where with all that money that is currently being spent at almost forty billion dollars a year, they would have to look back and go. We got to trim 20, 20 billion off. Where's that 20 billion going to happen? And then the next year, where's that other 20 billion going to happen? Yeah, so it's a good question. So ultimately, there's a few areas that we point to as kind of starting points. Um, one of the areas is kind of what we refer to as corporate welfare or business subsidies. Um, so some of our research pointed to uh, between 2007 and 2019, um, governments at all levels in Canada spent $352 billion on corporate welfare um, during that time. Um, so starting to reduce or eliminate a lot of that corporate welfare is, is a good area to start. Um, there's a lot of aspects. I believe the federal government, for instance, in uh, 2019 was at about 11 or $12 billion in corporate welfare. Um, so that kind of provides you a sense of scale um, in terms of the amount of business subsidies or other things that were going out to um, you know, businesses that we, we've seen in, in the economic research are not actually helping the economy. And in many cases, they can actually be hindering the economy because um, what the governments are doing is actually picking winners and losers in industries and businesses rather than allowing the, the private sector um, to determine which which businesses and industries are ultimately actually going to thrive over the long term. Yeah. Uh, so it's actually having that active government role um, that is not actually beneficial um, to the economy. A few other areas too, um, aligning government sector wages with private sector wages. Right now there's a huge wage premium um, that's earned by uh, government sector workers um, compared to comparable private sector workers who have similar education experience um, and types of roles. Um, so generally in, in Canada, I believe the amount was something like an 8%, um, our government sector workers earn about 8% higher wages than comparable private sector workers who do, do similar types of work. Um, so that's another area that they could target. Um, and then uh, the last thing that we also highlight too is just eliminating government fiscal waste. Um, we know there's a whole host of, of issues that um, the federal government could really trim the fat on. Um, so many different categories. Yeah. Arrive can. So there's so many different, you know, that's that's one instance, you know, arrive can. Um, when you look through some of these auditor general reports, really, um, you know, there's there's pretty um, you know shocking results for a lot of these different programs where there's um, government mismanagement, government inefficiencies. Yep. Um, similar story with a lot of the COVID programs that we saw as well. Um, we did our own estimates and we estimated that about 25% of COVID spending was wasted or inefficient or misspent. Um, so that's another really category where uh, governments can really cut back um, and, and actually review a lot of their programs and services that they're offering to see if there actually is waste. And I'm sure they will find significant problems um, with a lot of different um, deliveries and programs and, and departments um, at the federal level right now. Um, and then just one more slide here. So this this basically shows you what we're projecting for federal spending. Um, so the blue line shows you what the current plan is for the federal government. Um, so they're projecting to increase spending by from $450 billion a year uh, to just under $500 billion by 2026. So it's a pretty dramatic increase over time. Um, and then the red line in this graph here just shows you uh, if you basically froze spending or just moderately increased it by 0.3% for two years, um, you would actually get back to a balanced budget. Um, so it doesn't actually require them to cut spending year over year, just requires them to slow down that, that growth rate over time. So um, it just requires that discipline and responsible management of federal finances. 
Um, so there's, there is a path forward and there is optimism, but the federal government actually has to change course uh, dramatically um, if they actually want to return to a balanced budget and, and get back to a stable level of finances right now. Um, of course, is my final slide. When you're saying when you're saying a balanced budget. So if you're looking at four hundred fifty billion dollars, is that what the revenue, like tax revenue, that comes into the government is four hundred fifty billion, and then we're looking at expenses of four hundred fifty billion. Correct. Yeah. So that is is basically just balancing the books. So it's saying, okay, we're matching revenue with spending. Uh, so we'd be taking in, you know, for instance, $450 billion of revenue um, and we're spending $450 billion. So this isn't even proposing necessarily dramatic reductions in spending. Um, we're just saying, hey, if you match revenues with expenditures, you get back to a situation where you're no longer accumulating debt. Um, you're just getting back to kind of that, that scenario where everything's back to balance. Um, then we can actually maybe get into a situation where in future years we run surpluses and we start paying back th this debt. We have higher revenues than we do expenditures. Um, but the starting point is ultimately getting back to that balanced budget before you can even have those conversations about surpluses. I thought there was a law or they, they talked about it a long time ago about making a law that said it the budget had to be, well, it had to be a balanced budget. So one of the issues is that there have been many cases in Canada of balanced budget legislation. So they're required um, by law to have those the balanced budgets. The issue, though, is that because it's just legislated and it's not a constitutional rule, it's just as easy to just scrap that legislation and get rid of it when it's convenient. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we advocate for putting in constitutional rules, because um, they're much harder to undo than just a, a simple piece of legislation that says you have to balance the budget, um, mm -hmm. because those are really easy for you know successive governments to come in and just simply scrap those rules and say, no, we don't want to do that anymore. Um, or even sometimes the, the same government that put in that legislation ends up being the ones to scrap the legislation because it's no longer politically convenient for them to have that narrative or they're in a recession or something like that. Um, yeah. So that the dynamics change pretty quickly. Well, the only, Chris, the only problem with that, and I, and I agree with you, is that con constitutional change in this country is the bar is so high, it is all but impossible, unfortunately. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's true, especially at the federal level, the constitutional changes are much harder to make. It's a lot more feasible, though, at the provincial level, because the, um, the the stakes or standards aren't, aren't as high of requirement from a legal standpoint. Uh, so it's easier to make constitutional amendments at provincial levels than it is federal. Uh, but I do take your point um, about how hard it is to make those constitutional requirements. Um, but it's more about a kind of a long-term view, um, especially if, you know, Albertans or Canadians view that as something that they want um, to ensure long-term discipline on their on their governments, um, then some, something like a constitutional amendment might be the way to go, um, just because the legislation ultimately, that route uh, only works so much as the government itself has to be willing to impose that discipline on itself. And the second that they're, they're no longer willing to do that, um, then it's very easy to get rid of those rules. So when you talk about provincial constitution, you, you're talking about creating one. Uh, no, it's actually just the constitutional amendment. There's um, legal requirements and precedents already in Canada. Um, so what uh, some of my colleagues have done work on, um, it has to get recognized by the Federal House of Commons and Senate. Um, but you can actually have a referendum in Alberta and then pass legislation provincially. And then it just gets rec uh, recognized by the Federal House of Commons and Senate. And then it would get uh, ingrained, essentially, I believe it would be like an amendment constitutionally um, for, for Canada. Um, so that's one of the, the interesting ways that you could probably go about this issue. 
So now are you talking about, you're, you're talking about making an amendment to Constitution Act 1982? I believe so, yeah. Um, my, my colleagues have done more work on in this area than I have, but um, that's basically their, their proposal is they've looked into this into more detail. So it, it does require a referendum. I believe you have to get like a majority of people in the province uh, to vote in favor, and then the province has to pass that legislation. Um, and then I, I think because it's part of the Constitution Act 90, 1982, then you need the, the federal rec recognition as well. There is a separate formula um, that would be applied at the federal level. That's a much higher uh, kind of threshold where it requires, um, you know, uh, 50% in every province plus, um, I believe it's like two thirds um, of the House of Commons or something like that as well. Um, so there's there's a, a higher threshold for federal constitutional amendments. That's interesting. And that's something we're gonna have to look into because I, I was unaware that we could make any amendments or alterations to the constitution without the the high threshold. So uh, yeah, we're, let's, we're gonna take a little dig into that later on. You know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's it's uh, it's an interesting development and it's only popped up uh, really recently because uh, the discussion about the Heritage Fund is really what precipitated this. Um, so one of my okay. colleagues, for instance, is doing a lot of work on the Heritage Fund and uh, some of the other Alberta issues. So this is one of the things that they're proposing is to make it a constitutional requirement. Um, so they actually have some some articles that are that will uh, Likely, I think one already came out in the Calgary Sun or Edmonton Sun, uh, talking about the Heritage Fund and, and what they want from constitutional uh, requirements, for instance. Interesting. Okay, right on. Well, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad we heard that. It gives us something to chew on. Yeah. Uh, Jake, thank you very much for the, the the graphs and you know it it is a visual medium and we do like to show what what the numbers are and I think people really appreciate that. And I know I certainly do, especially when we're uh, we're talking about this. We are doing some questions and uh, comments. So if you do have any, please put them in the uh, the comment section with three question marks. And then that way, at least I can look back at some of these. Before we jump into that, though, before we went uh, live with this, I did want to just do a Google search just to see what it is in terms of Government of Canada and debt. And there was a wide range of websites, of course, Fraser Institute showed up as well as others. And, and one of them that I wanted to show up here, and, and it just, it's the name of the website that just cracks me up. But then I want to get into a little bit more about some of the questions. It's called uh, buildbackbetter.unifor.org. And uh, they, they do have a lot of good, good feedback here, myth-busting government debt. How deficits and spending foster growth. So here's myth number one, and we all we always take a, a personal approach when we're looking at debt. We're looking at it as our own household finances. Government is so big that you can't even do that same sort of analogy. You know, you can't say, "Well, I need to save a little bit of money in case my furnace dies." Well, if you did that proportionally, the government would need to put aside billions and billions of dollars in case something of that same percentage happened. That's never going to happen, right? So one of the questions is, is Canada is spending way too much on public programs right now. It's just not sustainable. Am I right? And then they actually go into spending money on social programs is not necessarily a bad thing, right? There are certain reasons why you want to do that uh, to, to help people out. And, and especially when we're talking about um, the child daycare, the idea behind the child daycare is so that people have it a little more sustainable. They can go to work 
and not feel like they, you know, they can't, they, they have to make a choice between um, having the kid at home uh, with a parent that's not making a wage or being able to send them to a, uh, uh, a daycare. And of course, I could go on with that because that was something that was really close to me. I did exactly that. Um, and, and I will never, never say that that was a bad thing for my daughters, but I know a lot of, a lot of people have, have to make that, that decision that they need to be able to, to go to, uh, uh, to go to work in order for their, their household finances to, 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 um, to basically balance themselves, I guess. Right. So, but I, and so that's myth, myth number one. And uh, I'm just going to show another one here. Um, oh, and here's, here's exactly what I was just saying. Myth number two, budgets. Listen, governments are like households, okay? Just like mine. We all have to live within our means. We can't go around buying things we can't afford. Same sort of an idea. And it goes through the, the budget uh, myths. I think these are, are, you know, we try and be as, as nonpartisan as we can. There are two sides to every story. Uh, some of these stories are really good. Some of them uh, I, I would I would question. Um, one last little thing I'm just going to say: before I moved out to uh, to uh, to Alberta, I was uh, a multimedia designer in Manitoba. We set up a school, and the only and we wanted to expand. And we were in Manitoba, so where would we expand in Manitoba? Well, you go either Winnipeg or you go to Brandon, right? We ended up going through government programs and they gave us a program that was allowed, basically making us uh, the ability to come out to Calgary, to Edmonton and Vancouver, and we set up schools there, right? There are positive ideas with, with having these programs out there as well as, as using that government money. The problem we've got now is I think everybody wants a piece of that pie, right? And, and it seems like every every business or everybody out there is looking for some government handout because we almost have to do that because if you try and go on your own, there's just not enough money. So anyways, there was a lot of rambling and I know there wasn't really a question in there, but I, I just wanted to kind of give, uh, we, we have a few comments out there saying, uh, you know, like, uh, well, it, it sounds all doom and gloom. Well, there's there's reasons why we do do this this spending, and and it, likewise, there's a reason why the Alberta Prosperity Project does these webinars is to educate people. So it's not just all doom and gloom. What can we do about this? Well, it sounds like you know what we're we're so far gone. We might as well just all move to Costa Rica. We don't want to do that. Although I wouldn't mind doing that, but we're not going to do. It. Chris, do you have any comments on, on any of that? Chris just um, muted himself. Try again. Get it. There you go. There we go. Yeah. So did you just ask if I had any comments? If you had any, of course. I know you have any, you have comments. We're gonna this, get this to whole time, We're this gonna whole get time, to this I just I I can't get this one phrase out of my head, and that is the budget will balance itself. I don't understand uh, what what's mm, happening here. Why great. why has it not balanced itself? Yeah, yeah. Jake, why is the budget not uh, budgeted or balanced itself? <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I mean, ultimately, it is. It, it, essentially, you can get into a situation like our revenues have actually grown quite fast in Canada, especially at the federal level. Um, so, if if the government had simply 
you know, been more, more responsible with, with spending, so they can still increase spending over time. Um, that's not an issue. It's just the rate of growth in spending has been so much faster than revenues have grown. It's been yeah. faster than our economic growth rates. It's been faster than our population growth and inflation levels. Um, so it, the federal government actually could have been in a balanced budget scenario many years ago um, because of how much growth we've actually had in revenues over time. Um, they could have actually matched that and just simply grown spending at the same level as, as revenues are projected to grow. And we could have actually been in a situation where we had a balanced budget much, much faster. Um, but the issue has been just that spending is growing so much faster than revenues. Um, so the, the budget could essentially have balanced. Um, but we're, we're getting into a situation now where a lot of discretionary decisions by the federal government and by provinces as well um, is increase, increasing spending at an unsustainable pace. I'm going to go back and, and do some of these questions for sure. Um, I'm going to go backwards because Denise has already sent me another message here saying, and I'm not sure if we can answer some of these questions. Child daycare, what's the limit per year that a couple with two children can make per year? Um, I don't know. I, I, that that might be something that you could probably just look on the, uh, uh, the Canada website. Yeah, if, if you look at like uh, Canada Revenue Agency, for instance, they they set out a lot of the eligibility criteria and the income thresholds yeah. um, and the amounts um, for things like Canada Child Benefit and the ten dollar day daycare program as well. Um, so you can see a, a lot of the the conditions and eligibility criteria on the government websites for that information. Uh, but I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. Yeah, you know, Carrie, pro yes. programs like the ten dollar a day government subsidized daycare. Yes. In my mind, are it's a disaster. The, the government taxes us beyond anything reasonable, and then they create these programs. They spend three hundred percent more than the pub, than the private sector would spend on these programs. Yeah. And they dangle these carrots in front of us as some sort of a, you know, a, a virtuous, compassionate thing for us Canadians. But the reality is. Uh, they've taken our money, mismanagement, mismanaged it, and then created programs to try and convince us that it was a good idea to tax us this way in the first place. So there is a, there is another way to do that, and that would be get out of our business, quit taxing us so much, and uh, then we wouldn't be sending our children to state-run daycare. Yeah. Um, or whatever. Yeah. Here's one. So I'm covering Jake's Jake's face with this, but uh, David says, great information, Jake. However, the projection to balance the budget in three years does not considering does not consider relieving Canadians of the harsh tax load that they are currently paying. What are your thoughts of reducing taxes and the impact on balancing the budget? Yes. So this is actually a great question. So we're actually, I'm actually currently doing research on this very issue about how you balance the budget while also reducing tax rates. Um, so, what we've shown is when when you just go do the scenario where you're not reducing tax rates, you can balance the budget, like I said, by just basically freezing spending for two years or, or three years. Um, but when you're reducing tax rates and you still want to balance the budget, that is going to require a reduction in spending. Um, so then you're going to have to do a federal spending review um, to determine where you're actually going to cut for programs and services. Um, but it is feasible. Um, and one of the ways you can do that is actually by reducing tax rates, by also eliminating a lot of tax credits. 
Um, the reason why we would eliminate certain tax credits is because a lot of them can actually distort the system and create special privileges or biases for certain individuals and not be offered to other individuals. Mm -hmm. um, so it's actually an inefficient way of going about it where you have a lot of tax credits um, in the system. Um, so one of the things that we recommend is actually reducing tax rates really across the board um, and then using some of the money that you gain from eliminating certain tax credits um, to actually pay for um, that reduction in tax rates. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one of the ways that you can actually um, kind of limit how much you need to decrease um, program spending um, is actually look at how do we reform the entire uh, personal income tax system, for instance, mm -hmm. um, to make it more efficient, to also make it less burdensome for families. Um, but we also know, you know, even when you go beyond personal income taxes, when you look at things like property taxes, sales taxes, um, you know, the list kind of goes on. Um, you know, our calculations have the average Canadian family spending about 45% of their annual income on total taxes. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a pretty substantial amount. Um, so I think there's also needs to be a lot of um, discussion among not only the federal government, but also provincial governments and local governments about the taxes that we're imposing on Canadians right now. Because um, if you look at property taxes, for instance, really across Canada, they're increasing at a very unsustainable pace. Currently. Yes, they are. Like almost 10% all across the board. Oh. Yeah. It, it's, it's my understanding, though, that as, as any jurisdiction decreases taxes and makes it more attractive for investment and business, that also increases the, the overall revenue available as, as a tax base. Is that not, that, that also would contribute to that calculation, would it not? Yes. Um, so that also affects it too. One of the benefits of actually reducing tax rates is that you do get more business investment, you get more job creation. Um, so generally what can actually happen is you might actually increase your revenue over the long term. Um, so that's another development. Um, it might not happen in the immediate short term, but it will happen over the kind of medium or long term as well that you can see those economic benefits. Um, so that's another reason not only to just help the pocketbooks of Canadians by reducing tax rates, um, but also the economic benefits that come over the long term, um, not only from a revenue standpoint, but also just job creation, business investment, things that we need um, actually more of to get innovation and also to improve living standards for, for Canadians. Because uh, right now we have pretty stagnant living standards for Canadians. Um, so one of the solutions that you can actually have is to reduce tax rates um, to actually improve those incentives to save, work, invest, um, and so on. Um, here's a question. And and again, there, there's a lot of these similar questions, so we'll try and jam them into one. Ron asks, what if we introduce legislation stating the country is not allowed to give money away that it does not have, that you cannot borrow against potential income to give away to other countries? I believe this is based upon uh, giving money to like to Ukraine or or maybe uh, uh, South American countries that uh, that require uh, help from well from richer richer countries like like Canada. Uh, can we could we not introduce some sort of a legislation like that? I think we briefly touched on this anyways. Yeah, I mean, like ultimately it comes down to decisions made by individual governments. Um, yeah. So over not only what how much they're spending, but what they want to do with that spending as well. 
um, any legislation that governments would put in place for or against that notion um, could just as easily be scrapped by another government too. Um, so again, it comes down to kind of those, those constitutional rules um, because they're very hard to put in place, constitutional rules are, and they're also very hard to undo for those same reasons too. So legislation um, you know, can easily be undone by any successive governments, regardless of really the issue. Uh, David asks, I understand that Canada's GDP is over 60% from the public sector. Private investors have fled Canada because of the federal government. I have seen reports that Canada's GDP per capita has been dropping for years. I don't see how this is sustainable. What are your thoughts? Yes, this is a significant issue in Canada. Um, so GDP per capita is basically a broad measure of individual living standards in Canada. Um, and what we're seeing right now is that Canada's GDP per capita is essentially either falling or stagnant and basically remaining the same over, over time. And that's a significant issue because that essentially means that our individual living standards aren't improving over time. Um, and that's, you know, that's not a global problem, actually. That's mainly a Canada-related problem. Because if we look at to our southern neighbors in the United States, they've actually seen about a 15% increase in their GDP per capita over the last eight years or so. Um, whereas Canada has basically only seen less than a 2% increase in our GDP per capita over the last eight years. Um, so just to put that in perspective, that basically means their living standards are increasing by about seven times as much um, over the last number of years. And that's not an inconsequential amount. Um, that's thousands of dollars um, for, for Canadian families in terms of wages, salaries, um, improvements in their, in their living standards. So this is a huge issue that Canada needs to begin to address. Um, and one of the ways that we can address that, for instance, is by looking at our tax system, um, which is very punitive um, at the moment. So um, I think that's really the first step that we need to take. And then other things that we can do too is also addressing a regulatory burden in Canada um, so we can actually get projects done um, nationally in Canada. Um, and then looking at other other ways that we can also address uh, productivity and, and enhancing our economic growth as well. Um. And again, a, a few more of these questions. What about a flat tax across the board? I know there, there have been a few political parties that have said, you know what, like, we're just going to do 20% or 30% right across the board, and uh, and that will pay for things. And likewise, um, there's another series of questions. Kind of, what are your thoughts of having consumption taxes versus our current tax system? In other words, I love that. a flat 10% and then... You know, you're paying tax based on uh, uh, gasoline tax. The more you consume, uh, maybe uh, anything that's that's used, you're paying a tax on. In other words, uh, the richest people will be those that sit at home and do nothing. Yeah, so there's a, a lot there. Um, so in terms of flat taxes, that's generally um, more economic enhancing as to have a flat tax system as well. Um, so Alberta obviously used to have the 10% the flat tax. Um, so that, that might be one thing that the province or other jurisdictions can look at revisiting um, is having a, a flat tax structure because it, it generally actually serves your, your province quite well. Um, it actually attracts a lot of skilled workers to the province. It attracts a lot of businesses, for instance, having the, those flat taxes and the lower tax rates as well um, when you're competitive with other jurisdictions. Um, consumption taxes is an interesting one because if you look at the, a lot of the economic literature, it's a lot more efficient and beneficial tax than um, 
taxes on labor income or personal income or corporate taxes. Those are generally more punitive and more economically damaging. Now there has to kind of be a a right balance between all of those aspects um, in terms of, you know, how much you're setting for for consumption taxes versus personal income taxes and corporate income taxes. Um, But if we look at, you know, some some interesting countries like Estonia, for instance, they have a flat tax uh, rate structure and they also have a consumption tax as well. And they're generally thought of as being one of the best tax systems. Um, they used to be under former former Soviet control um, up until the 1990s. And then when the Berlin Wall f- fell, um, they had a pretty substantial development where um, they modernized quite quickly and had um, that flat tax rate structure came in quickly, um, as well as their consumption tax. Um, and they generally have one of the better um, tax schemes in, in the world. So it's a pretty interesting model that I think people might want to uh, pay attention to is in Estonia, which is just a, a small country in Eastern Europe. Yeah. Chris, I muted you. Did you want to say something? Oh, I just got excited when I heard the idea of a consumption tax. <laughs> so, like, I, I completely agree with that. And in my in my view, um, nobody should ever be taxed or, or penalized for earning. Nobody should ever be demanding that they receive a portion of another person's uh, income or a value they've created or a product they create. That's in, that's that's uh, it's a horrible system. But a consumption tax that was on a scale uh, that suited the, the products you were buying, for instance, if you buy a loaf of bread, you shouldn't be taxed on it. If you buy a, uh, you know, like a, a I don't know, a, a really nice stereo for your house, maybe it would be 8 or 9%. If you're going to go and buy a Lamborghini or a Ferrari, well, then maybe you're going to pay 30 because you obviously have the money to buy a Ferrari, right? So in my mind, that's, that's a much simpler, more efficient, and fairer tax than any income tax could ever be. In addition, imagine the bureaucracy that we could dump if we didn't have a, a, a revenue agency that dealt with income tax. Like that's a, I just think that's a fantastic idea. Mm-hmm. Um, Jake, what's your view of creating an Alberta revenue agency? And Captain Carter says, thank you, John. Chris, you're good muted. Question. Yeah. It's a good question. I haven't done as much research into this area because I have another, we have another colleague that specializes in Alberta-related issues. So they're looking at, for instance, the Alberta pension plan, yeah. um, some of the proposals that have been made um, you know, in, in recent years from like the Fair Deal panel, for instance. Yeah. Uh, that is something that has been raised um, as the Alberta Revenue Agency, similar to kind of Quebec has their own revenue agency, for instance. Yeah. The, the only issue for me just from a high level um, is the the cost and administration expenses. Um, if you're you're collecting your own tax revenue, that is you know ultimately going to be borne by Alberta taxpayers as well because you have to pay to essentially establish your your own system as well. Um, and you're not going to get a, a commensurate reduction in federal taxes, even though you're you're no longer paying you know for Canada Revenue Agency uh, purposes, for instance. Uh, so that's the only thing I would say is just that might be one consideration for people um, is that there are going to be those administrative and, and bureaucratic expenses to set up and continue running an Alberta Revenue Agency. Yeah. Um, so that that's probably the only comment that I can give on that thing, just because I don't know enough uh, details about that. Um, we have other colleagues looking into that. I, def- I definitely agree. You know, there's the setup cost and there's the running, letting it run cost. The the reason why I like the Alberta Revenue Agency is because right now the money goes to the feds and then the feds give it back to us. If we had our own Alberta Revenue Agency, 
we would be in control of the money and then we would give the money to the federal government for those social programs or even programs that we would be using the federal government for. Right. And, you know, we were, we were talking about the Alberta pension plan versus uh, Canada pension plan, especially when we were talking about uh, Quebec and uh, having their own revenue agency. So of course, question is, RS asks, does it make sense for Alberta to have an Alberta pension plan and opt out of the Canada pension plan? This is, we're not going to hold you to this, Jake. So answer this as, as best as you want to, because we all have our own opinion on this. So go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, so I haven't specifically done research in this area. We have other colleagues doing research in this area. Um, all I'll say is that in their research, what they've pointed to is that we could lower contribution rates for Albertans yes. by having an Alberta pension plan. And that's the main justification is that we have a younger population, um, for instance, and we could also have lower contribution rates for an Alberta pension plan um, while having the same benefits, for instance. Um, so I haven't formulated my own opinion on this um, yet, but um, we do have other colleagues and there's also research on our website at FraserInstitute.org. Uh, so if people are interested in reading about this issue, um, we had a, a study that came out, I believe, two or three years ago on this very issue about what um, the co different contribution rates would look like for Canada versus Alberta, Canada um, if Alberta opted out or remained in the program, for instance. Okay. Excellent. Uh, we're going to answer a couple of more questions here. We, I, I did mention the, uh, the $10 daycare and uh, Nanette came up and is asking this question. It's one thing to have daycare for $10 on the taxpayers who have already maxed out. But what about the day homes that have been operating and will be out of a job because of these $10 daycare homes? Uh, that being said, what is being done for those day homes or the families who want their kids in day homes as opposed to day homes? I know what she's saying in there. That might be a total different uh, topic. We actually discussed a, a portion of this when we did a webinar with uh, Tasha Fishman. Um, I forget exactly when we did that. Uh, you can just scroll back and take a look at our uh, website here with all our videos. Uh, I'm just going to call that up just so that uh, people have an idea of where to go. I know uh, we post ours on uh, the chriscarryshow.com, but we also on Rumble. Uh, these are the live videos that are going on on Rumble. So if you go Rumble and you look for the Alberta Prosperity Project, you can probably scroll back. I'll just see if I can quickly find that particular one. Just to say what is going on here. And no, so I don't see it in the first two pages, but I'm sure if you go there, you can probably find out. Uh, we did touch on that that whole thing with uh, uh, what happens with uh, with, um, with with business with businesses that are set up to be day homes, and then the government comes in and says you know what, we're going to set up a completely different one and we're going to help another business that runs it at $10. And then that day home actually has to go back and again, talk to the government about, I need to be able to do this $10 daycare and they need to figure that out. Probably outside the scope of this complete talk, but I just thought I'd bring that up anyways. So, I'm back. Yes. Okay. So I'll, I'll make a quick comment on both the Alberta Pension Plan and the Alberta Revenue Agency. And sure. then i got to start driving again. Okay. So the, Regarding the Alberta Revenue Agency, um, Jake, you're absolutely right. It, there is a, a cost to setting it up. But the main points of the Alberta Revenue Agency, at least in my opinion, is that what we're experiencing right now in our relationship with Ottawa is that they collect our taxes. 
and then they send us back transfers unless of course we're trying to stand up against a certain policy and then as they've done in the past they um you know they hold back transfers or whatever in order to get us to concede to their their demands or bend to their will just recently the federal government dangled a multi-billion dollar carrot in front of our government's nose and said um we'll give you your money back if you agree to participate in a federal health data collection scheme, which is infringing on provincial jurisdiction in healthcare. So it is important to have our own tax collection so that we're, so that we have the gold and then we make the rules for starters, but also that bureaucracy, yes, it would, it would bear a cost and we'd have to pay for it as taxpayers, but it would be in Alberta. And that's a big deal for me is, you know, the, the, the GTA right now is thick with federal workers who exist solely off of our tax dollars and they spend their money in that area and they vote for policy that is to their benefit. I would rather remove that power from Ottawa and bring it back to our province where it belongs. So mm-hmm. all of the money that's being spent on the bureaucracy is spent back in our province. It's, it's in Alberta real estate and Alberta vehicle sales and such. So, so that's the, the big uh, thing for me with the Alberta Revenue Agency contributing to the overall sovereignty of our province. And really, it's the same thing with the Alberta Pension Plan. Uh, that bureaucracy is largely in Ontario, in the GTA. And uh, aside from our over-contribution, our overpayment, our different demographic uh, regarding um, contributions and how much our pensioners get, just the fact that the people that manage that program are contributing to another province's economy, uh, it would likely be enough to offset the startup costs of either one of those programs. So both of those things are really important to me. Okay. And, and a, a few just comments here. There, uh, you know, it makes me, Denny says, it makes me sick to my stomach when I think what my grandchildren and great grandchildren will go through, especially when it comes to the, the burden of tax. I remember having a conversation with my dad. I was probably, well, I wasn't 18 yet, so I was pretty close, 16, 17. And he was saying to me about how much debt we would have then or, or that I would be looking at now. And we're having the same conversation 30 some odd years later. This is, uh, it, it's just, this is something that's just ongoing, I think. And is, is there going to be some point where, uh, where this is going to break. I mean, I think you always reach that, that point. Um, I mean, for me, this was one of the main reasons why I got interested in, in kind of fiscal policy and debt issues is just the impact on, on young and future generations. But it's not really a widely recognized issue by, by many, many people. It's kind of, if you have like this niche issue interest in, in actual government debt, then people kind of pay attention to it more. Uh, so for me, it was kind of how do we make this more of a, you know, an idea for a wider breadth of audience, for instance, about talking about government debt and the actual consequences for it. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, you do reach eventually like a near debt crisis situation if you continue down the current path that we're on. Um, so back in the 1990s, for instance, we reached a, basically a near debt crisis situation. Um, and ultimately, the federal government and provinces, um, regardless of political party in power, regardless of where you lived, whether you're in Saskatchewan, Ontario, Alberta, all of the provinces had to make significant changes, deep cuts, mm-hmm. because they had decades of fiscal mismanagement and significant debt. And at, at uh, 
during the mid 1990s, the federal government spent one out of every $3 of revenue on debt interest costs. So just to put that in perspective, today we're at about one in $10 of revenue going towards interest costs at the federal level. So we're nowhere near where we were in the 1990s, but you can get to a point where you were in the 1990s if we continue, keep going down this current track that we're on. Um, and the federal government ultimately had to make significant changes. They, they reduced spending by 10% over two years because yeah. they had to make deep, deep cuts um, in order to get them back to balance budgets and surpluses. And then once they did that, they started to reduce taxes and they had surpluses for basically the better part of a decade. Um, so there is ways to get out of these situations, but ultimately you don't want to wait um, forever to make those changes because then the pain is going to be felt a lot more in a contracted period of time. Um, whereas if you make those immediate adjustments now, then you can actually uh, reduce a lot of the pain that, that might occur late at a later stage. Um, so I think that's the really important part, part here is taking that long-term view. Um, it's not just about you know four-year election cycles or short-term decision-making. Um, you know, we, we want to actually be sustainable over the long term. So we should be contacting our elected officials and saying we want balanced budgets. Well, I think that's the important implication for me. It's, you know, it's balanced budgets, not just because it's, um, you know, it's it's popular or convenient. It's because it's it makes sense. Economically, it makes sense for future generations of Canadians, too. I always say, you know, today's deficits are tomorrow's taxes, too. So there's yeah. there's a cost associated with every decision. Um, so, you know, when, when people are kind of complaining about, you know, spending's not increasing as fast as I want it to, or, or we have to make cuts or other things. So, yes, but there's also a trade-off or consequence associated with, with a decision in the other way, too. Um, so if, if you're increasing spending rapidly, um, there's a huge cost associated with that as well. So there's, there's costs associated with every decision, um, but ultimately it's trying to balance the needs of every generation and making sure that we're not, um, you know, favoring one generation over the other by spending so much or, or, or taking on a cost that another generation doesn't necessarily enjoy the same benefits as the, the current generation might, um, you know, because ultimately when we borrow money that has to be paid for by either future tax increases, which falls on the next generation, or maybe we have to cut back on our current benefits or, or not current benefits, but future benefits. So maybe they don't enjoy the same programs that we do today. So those are ultimately the consequences over the long term. Chris, do you want to wrap up? Uh, you know, we're at an hour and a half and uh, we could probably easily talk for another hour and a half on particular issues in terms of tax revenue and where it should go. And we all have our own uh, own ideas, but uh, I think we've covered a lot. Uh, we've educated yeah. the the, the viewers and I think uh, you know we've kind of done what we wanted to do tonight for sure. Well, uh, Gary, I'll probably let you wrap it up, but I would like to say, uh, Jake, I really, really appreciate that you and your colleagues do this type of work. Um, I don't, I, I don't know if you're if you realize how valuable this type of information is to everybody, not just the people in Alberta, but the people in this country, because the our our. our Getting this information. No, I think we lost him. I wanted to let it sit because sometimes using this program that we use, it's called StreamYard, his feed will show up later on really clear, even though we don't see it. And then I can probably slice it and merge it together. I'm not even sure because it looks like uh, Chris is now spinning. So uh, I think he really just wanted to say that, yeah, this information, this is what we use to educate Albertans. We you know, that, that's kind of the whole point of the Alberta Prosperity Project is to talk about 
um, what rights we have or, or, and, and, and how to be prosperous. And obviously, if we can reduce tech, uh, tax, uh, taxes, number one, if we can reduce interest being paid on those taxes and any burden that the federal or provincial government are using, then that benefits us as Albertans. So I think that's really what he wanted to say. And again, thank you so much for all the work that you've done with this, Jake. Uh, amazing. And uh, I think we will definitely have you on again. Uh, I know this is uh, Jake's first time coming on and, and it, it's not that we, we just like hunting out new people. we like getting new ideas and, and new viewpoints. And most times when people come on, they're on two or three times because there's just so much to talk about on a particular topic within an hour and a half. So again, thank you so much, Jake. And I, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, uh, spewing your, your knowledge upon everybody uh, because Again, this is this is a topic that, for whatever reason, we don't seem to have at our dinner tables with our families and friends, and yet we should be. And religion. It's those two topics, right? <laughs> well, well, thank you very much. I very much appreciate being part of the discussion here tonight and uh, lots of great questions from everybody. And I, I love talking about these issues because you're, you're so right. I think so many of these issues don't get the, the attention that they deserve. So always glad to talk about uh, these these type of pocketbook issues for Canadians that's right excellent good well I'm gonna I'm gonna say goodbye to you Jake uh, I I hope everyone will just stay on for an extra two minutes or something I just have to have a couple of quick things that I want to wrap up with so again thanks again Jake and uh, we will see you again soon thank you great thank you so much and there we go so again it, it's just just as I finished saying, uh, these are the these are the topics that we like to bring to people and uh, and and let people know um, really what how to make ourselves more more prosperous as a province and and how to get people involved. Uh, what I wanted to do is bring bring up just the the fact that uh, we do these webinars, podcasts, we do uh, events, and all that takes money and time. And if you found any of this of value, I please ask that you somehow get involved with the Alberta Prosperity Project, whether it's not you go onto the website and you send us comments. Um, that's great. We, we need volunteers for, for events. We need people planning events. Uh, we've got uh, events. A couple of people who showed up late probably didn't hear me uh, talking about going on uh, going on our webpage, albertaprosperityproject.com and going to the events. And yes, we've got pension plan events. We're doing a, we're hoping to do a hundred dates, a hundred day tour, maybe a hundred, maybe let's just a hundred locations. Maybe that's what we're saying. Not necessarily in a hundred days. Uh, we're going to Czar, which is a provost uh, area on Saturday. That's Saturday afternoon, March 2nd. After that, we'll be in uh, Westlock on March 6th which again is when we usually do these webinars. So you'll have to decide whether or not you want to watch the webinar live or go to Westlock and, and listen on the Alberta Pension Plan. Here's my take. You can do both. You can do both. You can go and and uh, go to the, the meeting and you can always watch this after and find out what we're, we're talking about. Next week, we've actually got Benita Peterson on. I had some notes about her. We know Benita. Chances are you may know her of her in, in Alberta. She's a political advocate and she's been involved in a few groups 
including uh, Take Back Alberta, the United Conservative Party, and including her own group that's called All, uh, All Fired Up for Freedom. She will be talking about how to get involved in politics, specifically municipally, where she ran in the by-election for Westlock, Alberta. And she also was on the group that uh, helped to ban pride crosswalks and flags in the town, depending on how you, uh, you wanted to vote for that. Either way, she'll be talking about the process uh, that had to be done uh, and, and how it was done. And I think, again, the point being with we do a lot of stuff for Alberta Prosperity Project to bring it to you. And if you can, send us five bucks, right? If, if you found anything, do that. Or, or maybe you want to sponsor. Maybe you want to sponsor a, a webinar. Maybe you want to sponsor uh, a particular event. Get a hold of us. And I'm going to throw up. You can get a hold of us at contact at Alberta Prosperity. This one right here. Get a hold of us. Tell us how you think that you can get involved and how you would like to. And tell us whether you've got, you know, you're finding what we're giving to you, showing to you is worthwhile and definitely, definitely conversation worthy for your family and friends. And uh, and that's that's why we're here. We want we want to educate Albertans and uh, and and essentially try and get to the road of prosperity that seems to be eluding all of us especially with this federal government. So that's all I wanted to say. Thank you so much again. We do this every Wednesday and uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to be doing it next Wednesday or I'm going to be up in Westlock or Chris will be doing this. We still have to juggle that part around, but we'll figure it out. Either way, we will see you guys again next Wednesday. Take care. You guys are all amazing and uh, see you soon.